just want to let everybody know. Um, however, I'm super excited about uh, what we're looking at today. So before we start, let me take a drink of water because I'm parched. And let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you, God, for all that it expresses about your will and your ways with people. Uh, as sinful and as, as fragile uh, as we are and uh, as needy as we are, and yet you still um, put forth your hand of mercy and your loving arm to uh, do great and wonderful things amongst people. Father, how great it is to stand in awe uh, of your wisdom and your ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Uh, what we left off with last time was a bracketed section that went from chapter 14, uh, verse 22, all the way to 16, verse 17. And it's the idea of the tenth and of offerings and of tithe and the feasts that were going to take place. And it is all surrounded in celebration to God as the great king, is the idea. But now when we get into chapter 16, we are moving into something that is different. And we are actually going to be dealing with what is known as, I'm going to give it to you here, a chiasm of leadership. Chiasm of leadership. Let me get rid of this map for a second. What is a chiasm? Do we remember? If you were in hermeneutics class, you probably have an understanding of what a chiasm is. Okay, a chiasm is a literary structure that has been set up by the divine authorship of the Holy Spirit in order to bring an area to a head or to a point. And so what we're actually going to find, let me make sure that I tell you this correctly, we're actually going to find that this chiasm is going to run in an A, B, C, B apostrophe, A apostrophe format. And whatever C is, is a vitally important thing that the author wants you to understand. Now that doesn't mean that the A's and the B's are less important. That's not necessarily the situation. But this is being set up in such a way as to communicate a very punctuated idea. Now sometimes we see this take place over the series of a passage. Uh, for instance, if you ever read about the Tower of Babel, and you're dealing with um, Genesis chapter... Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. If you're dealing with Genesis chapter 11, and you deal with verses, I think it's 1 through 12 or 1 through 11, you actually find that there are things at the beginning of that passage and the end of that passage that parallel one another, but they all lead to a divine point or a big idea that God wants to get across there that he feels is the main thrust of what he's trying to push for. Well, we're going to see this in a situation starting in Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 and it is going to last unto chapter 18 verse 22 okay so this entire idea is going to be the chiasm of leadership 
And the reason, real quick, why it's called a chiasm, it's not called a chiasm. reason why it's called a chiasm is because uh, in the Greek alphabet, you have the uh, letter key is essentially what it is. Some people call it chi, uh, but it's essentially the X is what we would say if we were to think about it in English terms. So when we talk about the Christ, you know, key, you got it all right there, sound or whatever. And the idea is because it's an X is that this makes one side of the X. It's a ascending and then descending pattern is the reason why they do that. So, uh, so here's what we're going to look at. The very first thing, I'm going to go ahead and give you the divisions. And if you've got like big margins in your Bible or something like that, maybe you want to mark some of these, maybe you just want to write it down on a piece of paper. I'll go ahead and give you the divisions. Um, the first one here is instructions to judges. And I don't, capitalize that for any certain reason except I wasn't thinking at the time um, regarding justice and orthodoxy or simply put what is right is the idea and that is 1618 through 177 So, just give you a second to grab that and put it down. Instruction to judges regarding justice and orthodoxy. The second part is going to be instructions for Levitical priests. And, sorry, not and, as the Supreme Court. And of course, that's going to be 17, 8 through 13. 17 verses 8 through 13. Then it leads us to the pinnacle point in the chiasm. And that is instructions uh, let's see here. Instructions for Israel's king. And that is 17 verses 14 through 20. The next one here is instructions for I'll do this. How's that? Does that help? <laughs> Levitical priests. Um, as worship 
officials. And this will be, oh, let's see here, is that right? Or does it start at 18? It does start at 18. 18, one through eight. 18, one through eight. And then the last one, Instructions to the people as those who oversee orthodoxy, and that is eight nine through twenty-two, I believe it is. Yeah, 9 through 22, which is the end of the chapter. So notice that you've got, man, I need my colored markers in here. I was sad that I didn't bring them. Notice that all of these are instructive, number one. The whole idea is the instruction of leadership. Notice that the things that you have in common with A and A apostrophe are the idea of orthodoxy. What is true and right is the commonality between those two. Starts that way ends that way. In your B and B apostrophe section, you are dealing with the subject of the Levitical priests and the extent of what they are concerned with. You actually find out that they are not just uh, sacrifice makers. They're not just divine meat market guys, okay? Uh, they are actually the, the, the servant of form of decisions with the Supreme Court because of discernment from God and his word. And we're also going to find out that they are also those who lead others in the object of worship. And then as the central focus here is going to be instructions for Israel's king. And that is incredibly important because, remember we talked about, if you want to know, uh, if you want to understand the rest of your Old Testament, you need to understand two books, Genesis and Deuteronomy. If you have Genesis and Deuteronomy down, you can plug those events or truths into anything else that goes on in the entire Old Testament and you will have a much greater sense of what's going on. So anytime that we have kings that come up, Saul, David, Solomon, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, doesn't matter who it is, it comes up through there. You will find that whatever takes place in 17, 14 through 20 is absolutely indispensable to the success of their reign, and also stands in accusation against them in the failures of their reign. Everybody understand that? So that's why this type of stuff is important. How are the Jews to have decisions made? Well, that's important. How are the judges supposed to have decisions made? Anybody think that maybe if they're bringing up the idea about you need to have judges, that all of a sudden it's going to connect our brain to the book of Judges? I mean, the book of Judges comes after what? Joshua. Joshua. What takes place in Joshua? Going to exactly the conquest of the land and once they're in the land they need to appoint judges just like it's talking about in deuteronomy when you come to the land you are to do this why because it's a whole new structure of how you've lived before and so in doing that these passages right here are going to be very pertinent to the time of the judges and we know the cycle of the judges right the people lose sight they fall away god disciplines them by by a different people in doing so, finally they come to the end of themselves and they cry out to God. And when they cry out to God, he raises up someone to come and to rescue them. 
and that they're supposed to listen to what this judge says and do what this judge says, or it's going to be calamity for them once again because they are a judge that is sent by God. So all of these things, these, these five areas here, you're going to find they plug it in some way to help us better decipher and interpret the Old Testament. Everybody with me? Okay, I want to give you a second to make sure you got it all written down, ready to go, that kind of stuff. So we're going to start in chapter 16, verse 18. This is the area, instructions for the judges regarding justice and orthodoxy. Verse 18, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people, now watch this, with righteous judgment. Now, when it says there, uh, let's see here, in all your towns, which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you, that automatically shows you that we're talking about the time that they occupy the land. Is that correct? Did everybody get that? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. The time that they come in to occupy the land, one of the first things they've got to take care of is they've got to appoint judges and officers in every town. And notice that it gives you a standard. Notice it says here, they shall judge the people with a righteous standard. Whether something is righteous or wicked has to be compared to what? Do we know? The word. Well, what God has revealed in his word so far. Now, knowing that Yahweh has got this personal, incredible relationship with the children of Israel, I mean, we know from wilderness times, leading them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They've got certain audience with him in such a way as to where he is able to give them the truth of which they're to turn around and dispense to others. Whether that comes through Moses, whether it's things that have been written down so far, whether they're taking a situation and just by principle, comparing it to some of the things that have happened beforehand. I mean, think about it. All they have to go off of, written-wise, is whatever Moses has had the opportunity to document at this point. And the fact that they're at the end of the wilderness, I don't know if he stopped and had, like, literary sessions every once in a while for 40 years while they're wandering around, but it makes you wonder, what exactly did they have down as far as truth was concerned? We know they had the law. They documented all those things. So we've got 613 commandments. Surely some of those, at least in principle, are going to cover a lot of those situations. So, for a judge, in order to righteously judge, to give judgment in a righteous fashion, they've got to know what God has said. God is the standard of which truth and falsehood are measured. Nothing else. It's just like, And it's no different than today. Just because somebody says, well, this is right for us. Or, you know, or our family believes that this is what's true. Or, you know, our land is able to do this. Or you can, you can not do this here or whatever. That doesn't mean that it has a hill of beans in the scope of eternity of what's really truly true. Who defines truth is God. So notice it's enacting that mindset into a community atmosphere in every town has individuals who are responsible for it. Verse 19, you shall not distort justice. Does that happen today? Okay, just checking. Because notice that God's warning against it. You shall not be partial. You shall not regard persons. You shall not favor someone over another. Favoritism will destroy justice every time. It, it, That's why we don't have a justice system in the United States anymore. We have a legal system. Well, and, and, and that's, that's somewhat... That's, that's probably actually a really great way to, to understand that. Let me give you one of the ways that this hurts our nation the greatest. If you ever do fantasy football, 
Okay? A long time ago, I was a Washington Redskins fan. And so anytime the draft would come, oh, this quarterback's going to do it. The, quarter, the, the Redskins have not had a good quarterback since Joe Theismann, okay, early 90s. So I'm sure you girls are just loving this example right now. Um, but the fact is, is if I'm all hung up on my team, and because I'm hung up on my team and I'm showing favoritism to my team, and I'm drafting people from my team, and my team stinks that year, I am not going to come out on top in that situation. You know, we've had guys here, you know, they're just drafting as many Packers as they possibly can. Guess what? They all have the same week off. And now you got to bring in Scrubby McScrub in order to fill their spot. And that guy gets no points kind of idea. This example is probably totally lost on you guys. <laughs> but the idea is, is sometimes we allow our favoritism in order to warp our judgment about what really truly needs to be happening because we're optimistic, because we're hoping for the best. Well, it's going to be different this year. Well, things are going to get better. Look at the situation for what it is. Evaluate it properly according to God's word. Don't let anybody sway you from the right and to the left. And just execute his word and watch it do what it does, what only it can do. So he says here, you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. Does anybody do that today? <laughs> Let me give you a word. Lobbyist. <laughs> Lobbyist is where we see this. And we've seen this stuff happen. And again, I hate talking about political stuff because I feel like it really takes away from our intimacy with the Lord. But think about this. Somebody's going to push a bill through to get it passed. We've got these things that we want to see accomplished. And then you've got all these little provisions all these little addendums, all these little stapled on, it's almost like somebody wrote them on post notes and just kind of tacked them at the end. Can you get this through there as you will? And something that was four pages ended up being 40 pages because there's all these extra benefits and all this other junk that happens that had nothing to do with the bill. It just somehow gets squeezed through in the midst of it. Well, notice here, no bribes. How did those, how did those lawmakers get so motivated that I've got to get my point that I'm so passionate about on there? I'll tell you how they did it. Somebody contributed to their campaign. Kickbacks. Kickbacks. So somebody, somebody did something under the table in order to make that happen. Nothing that's of honesty there. Nothing that's of righteousness there. And that should be very concerning to us as Christians. Shouldn't be surprised. But we have a reason to be concerned. Notice it says, you shall not take a bribe. What's the reason why, God? For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of of the righteousness. Uh-oh. A bribe will make you look the other way. And a bribe will make you fudge your speech in saying something other than what God has said. Everybody see how twisted that is? Money talks. This is probably a good reason. Whenever, whenever Jesus tells them, you can't serve God in money. I guarantee you that this verse was on his brain. You can't make proper judgments about life and how you should live it when you're letting money control everything. When you're using money to control other people. Nothing righteous comes out. Well, here's what kills me. Think about this. Good grief. I don't know why I'm on a soapbox about this. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder how many times we have pushed away, swayed away, covered up the opportunity for the righteousness of God to show what it can do in a situation. Because we've done things like this and we've perverted it. God has never had an opportunity for his word to shine 
Because even as Christians, we find ourselves in little ways trying to either manipulate the situation or handle it in some way, just like in a situation like this. And it's amazing. If we would just let God's word do what God's word can do and trust it for what it says it will do, we would probably be mind blown at the results that would come out of this. He says here, verse, let's see here, 20. Justice and only, notice that that's not, uh, that's not in the original, justice. Justice you shall pursue. Why? That you may live and possess the land which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you. Now, we may graze over that real quickly and not really take the time, but think about what he's saying here. What is What would be the repercussion of allowing the things that are prohibited in verse 19 to take place? If you're not going to stand with justice, those things that are just, and if you're not going to pursue that in all your decision-making as a judge, guess what? You will not possess the land. The land will spit you out. There are opportunities all throughout the Old Testament, if you read along. All of a sudden, the children of Israel are in captivity. Children of Israel have been led away. We know the great captivity that took place with Babylon. We know that the Medes and Persians came in after that, that Cyrus finally commissions to go back. Nehemiah begins building the wall, those types of things, if we're familiar with some of our Old Testament history. But the reason why the children of Israel had to stay out of the land is because the land needed to be cleansed from all their sin and defilement. God actually took that into account. So notice, if you're not going to pursue justice, guess what? I'll take you out of your land. Real estate is at stake. His promise doesn't fail. His promise is to give them the land, and he will give them the land. But his promise doesn't negate their sin or overlook their sin. They will suffer discipline because of their sin. Verse 21. You shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree, Besides the altar of Yahweh, your Elohim, which you shall make for yourself. And you shall not set up for yourself a pillar, which Yahweh, your Elohim, hates. And why is that important? Well, here's the number one thing. An Asherah was actually a pole that was erected that was called a Canaanite cult fertility worship object it was very feminine in its design and it had a lot to do with the idea of incorporating illicit sex and everything to do with false god worship and so he's saying here now notice what he says this is very interesting he says you shall not plant for yourselves this asherah or what might you might know it better in its plural form in hebrew the asherim maybe you know it that way you're, you're, you're not to plant those there. In fact, what were they told when they came into the, the promised land? Pack them all down. Tear it down. Tear it down, set it on fire, burn it, get rid of it. You are not to be like that. Now do me a favor, put your finger right here and turn back to chapter 12. I want to show you just a brief section of where he commanded this previously. There's a lot going on here about false gods. There's a lot going on here about the theology of sacred space. There's a lot going on here about the uniqueness of Yahweh and how people operate in relation to him. Chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you, you shall carefully observe in the land which Yahweh, your Elohim of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy. That means complete removal. Wipe it out. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations, that's the Gentiles, the pagans, whom you shall dispossess, serve their gods, little g gods, motivated by demons, 
on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Why was that? Every green tree, because that was a symbol of fertility. High places, because they understood that the higher up you were, the closer to God that you were. And so they used that. Instead of God being an ever-present, always-present God, they looked at it as a God needed to be reached in somehow. And so they built their altars on high places to reach him in some way. So it says here, verse 3, You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram. There it is, the asherah, the ashram with fire and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods notice little g gods again and good word obliterate their name from that place by the time you're done with it you shouldn't even know that another person was there it's the it's, it's place given to israel period it's a place named by yahweh elohim and that's it you should never know that canaanites hittites jebusites any of those people, Amorites, wherever even there, wipe it clean and wipe it clean of those influences. Look at verse four. You shall not act like this toward Yahweh, your Elohim. Notice it's talking about a holiness that takes place, a separateness in how you deal with God. So there's the command for these things to take place. Here, he's really pushing that home. Verse, Go back to uh, chapter 16, verse 22. You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar. Sacred's not there. A pillar which the Lord your God, and it's pretty serious, he hates it. He hates all objects of false worship. Now, one of the greatest reasons why this would need to be taken in consideration is because to erect an ashram, Paul, instead of tearing them down and leaving them down, not messing with these are people who are actually taking the initiative to build one up for the sake of worshiping. Does everybody see why that would be so messed up? You come in and you tear down the ones that are already there because God told you, you utterly destroy them, obliterate them, wipe them out. Well, now we've gotten kind of bored with Yahweh Elohim, so now we're going to erect this and start worshiping false gods. Now pause. From what you know about the rest of the Old Testament, did this have the potential of happening? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So God's not warning in vain. Everybody see this? He knows. He knows the human heart and the propensity to want to worship anything that is created because they deem it more tangible than the word of God. And this is why Deuteronomy spent so much time, I don't remember where it was, but we spent on this section. Remember when you heard his voice at the base of the mountain? You didn't see an image. You heard his word. And his word is what you're to meditate on. Not an image, not a personage, not anything that's created, not the sun, moon, and stars, not angels, not created things, not squirrels, none of that stuff. You are to focus instead just solely on his word. What's the same idea here? Here's another reason why this is important, is if you look at chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, this right here would violate the first two commandments. Right? There is no other God but Yahweh your Elohim. And you are to build nothing in the image of any other God. Period. None. So he goes into 17.1. You shall not sacrifice to Yahweh your Elohim an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect for that is detestable. A detestable thing to Yahweh your Elohim. Detestable. Same word as abomination. It's an abomination. It is something that is absolutely horrible. That's what the word means. It's horrible to God. You know, uh, the way that, that, you know, the, the way that I was treated when I went through the checkout at the grocery store. That person was horrible to me. You know, think about that. Just, a, just, just an incredibly unpleasant and marked situation that, that doesn't easily leave you. Now, we would think here, wait a second, if there's instructions for the judges regarding justice and orthodoxy, why are we talking about erecting pagan poles, and why are we talking about blemish sheep, and why are we talking about that in relation to this? 
What does a judge do? They're overseers in that. They're overseers. Technically, they're kind of keeping tabs on people. A judge wasn't just bring me a case and I'll decide on it. A judge was somebody who was looking out for potential wrong and warning according to God's word. Now, here's the reason why the whole, you know, well, we've covered this before. Why is it? The blemish sheep idea is a big deal. Imagine, imagine that you were going to, uh, I don't know what to compare it to, but this. Imagine that you were like, yeah, I'm going to give to the church and I've got a $20 bill that I'm going to give to the church. But the problem is, is that I only have half the $20 bill because the other half got ripped off in the dryer and, and was all torn up and messed up and I couldn't tape it back together. You go over to the offering box and you throw in the $20 bill. Is that going to count whenever we deposit it in the bank? No, not at all. Well, well think about it. And, and besides, if you were sitting there going, you know what? I got this half $20 bill and then I got this crisp brand new $20 bill in my wallet. I think I want to give this one. Don't you know in stepping forward with that that this is worth less than the other? Yeah. Notice all about where your heart is in this situation. I'm going to worship God with my half $20 bill. They're not going to give you $10 for this. They're not going to do that. They're going to give you $0 for this. Well, it's the same idea. What is my attitude of worship and how I think about Yahweh? Well, if I'm sitting here saying, you know what? There's no way I could get as much for this sheep because it's messed up. There's a defect in it. Maybe it's lame, something like that. The milk isn't good. Whatever you want to say. And so therefore, I'm going to bring this up here and we're going to just get, this is a good way to get rid of a bad financial situation. <laughs> What's that say about God? How you think about God? About whether or not you're giving God your best. Well, it's a good thing if you have a judge to step in and go, no, don't do that. Back up. Rethink this. Reason with them over it so that they can repent of that and walk in a better path. Verse two, if there is found in your midst... In any of your towns. Now, this is interesting. Remember how judges were appointed in every town? Judges and officials? Now, notice, this opens the geography wide open. If any in any of your towns, which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your Elohim by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any heavenly host, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you, so you hear about that this is going on, okay, idolatry that's taking place, second commandment. Notice what it says. So you hear about this. It's told you. You've heard of it. Then you shall inquire how? Diligently. Diligently, thoroughly. Get in there to all the ins and outs. Take a notepad and a pen and document every fact that you see about the situation. Interview everybody. Leave no stone unturned in this situation. Why? Don't look what it says. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that, the, that this detestable abomination, this horrible thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deeds to your gates, to the very mouth of the city is the idea. That is the man or woman, and you shall stone them to death. Pretty serious? Pretty serious. Now here's what's interesting about this. I don't know. Contextually, we might say yes. I don't know that this holds it just upon a judge to make this decision. Notice it's a communal responsibility for everybody to keep in check with pursuing Yahweh and holding fast to righteousness. 
But if you've checked it out, you have all the evidence. And you are to bring this person in a place where they will be publicly recognized. And they're to be killed by picking up a rock and beating them to death. That's a serious means of execution. In fact, I would probably guess that if we had more televised stonings, we would probably have less crime. How intense that is. There's all oh, that's so barbaric, that's so archaic, that's so cruel. Man, a lot of what people do to deserve the death penalty is cruel. Don't talk to me about cruelty. Let's be honest about that. We're talking about upholding justice in a situation. So now, here it gets even deeper. Now watch this. Verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. Why is that? The reason why you need two or three witnesses at least that saw this, that can verify this, that will vouch for this, is because you are assuring the testimony in relation to that because the punishment is so severe. You don't just take somebody's life willy-nilly. Not at all. It's got to be carefully considered. It's something to be calculated and really weighed. Weighed to the point that because you agree with Yahweh's word that this behavior is so detestable, you have a clear conscience about following through and doing the execution. That's the idea. So two or three witnesses. He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, on the word of one witness. Why is that? Because anybody can make an accusation. You can tarnish somebody's reputation just by one person. And so you need much more than just one person saying something in order to step forward and do it. Now, this is why you see throughout the Bible when somebody says, but I call upon heaven and earth as witness to this situation because they're calling on two witnesses. You go through the book, the Gospel of John. You find that, that Jesus mentioned seven witnesses that verify who he is through the Gospel of John. You read it from beginning to end. He pulls out seven witnesses. He needs divine testimony to his person, his signs, his father, John the Baptist. Uh, I can't remember the other things that, that they have down on there, but he's got seven of them. If you go through, you can document uh, that show this. So you've got to have credible testimony. In order to step forward in this way. And look what it says. Verse 7. Here it is. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. In other words, because you're upholding righteousness and you're bringing this charge, you've accumulated the evidence, you've got the eyewitnesses that are in mind, you are the first one to strike. You are the one to bring this beginning blow to it. Now I can't begin to understand how severe this is. I can't begin to understand what it's like to have somebody beaten so to death. They did this to Stephen. And they did it unlawfully. Everybody think it's interesting at the end of Acts 7, beginning of Acts 8, I think that it is, where it finds that they're plugging up their ears so they can't hear what he's saying, and they all rush on him at one time, and they begin beating him. They drag him out of the city, and they beat him. Nobody gave a careful inquiry saying, hey, is what Stephen telling us true? You know? I've got my notepad here, and here's where he messed up on all these things. No. They were so emotionally motivated that they used a punishment of the law, and they killed a servant of God who, when he died, Jesus stood at the right hand of the Father. That's, that's incredible. Truth can drive you to that anger, and that's what killed Jesus' truth. Yes. Because he told the truth. Exactly. Truth does one of two things. It either softens a heart or it hardens a heart. It can't stay neutral. It never does. So notice, a person shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. 
In other words, that person may strike first, but this is to be something where the entire community of believers is to be involved in in pronouncing judgment against this person because what they did was so heinous against the Lord, it had to be dealt with swiftly and harshly. It also kind of uh, deters people from doing the whole false witness thing because not only are they testifying and they have to be honest, but yeah. you have to be the first one to strike. You testify, you do, it's not you testify and you walk away from the witness stand and you're, you're on, you know, uh, what, are, what do they call those things where they send witness you off? Protection and, witness protection program. You're not doing that anymore, no. And then you gotta live with it afterwards. Exactly. You have to live with it. You have to live with your conscience about the situation. Now notice how he gives this culminating remark here. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That type of evil is to be dealt with exactly and swiftly. It's evil. So this right here deals with the whole idea of you see here. Instruction to judges regarding justice and orthodoxy. How do you deal with those situations? You hold people accountable to, to keep them away from all idol worship. Notice it doesn't go into detail in this section about every little sin that people could commit. Notice it really deals with the idea of idolatry is going to be the greatest problem here. God knows. I mean, they have 400 years of it living amongst Egypt. And now here they're coming out and trying to cast off those trappings of the world and understand what it is to live as free people. I mean, if you do any research about slavery in America, you know that when people were set free from slavery, they had a difficult time learning what it was to actually be free people and not be repressed people anymore because they'd grown comfortable in that oppression. It's a very different mindset. What time do we have here? we got five minutes. I don't think we're going to make it, but we'll go ahead and, and hit it real quick. Uh, verse 8. If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another, notice those three areas there, okay? You've got homicide, you've got murder, you've got a dispute taking place in a lawsuit, and you've got a physical altercation that's taking place of an assault uh, or, or possibly even a sexual or rape case there or something like that. Being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place, there's the theology of sacred space, which Yahweh your Elohim chooses, and you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days. Notice that the priests have deciding uh, uh, jurisdiction or they have... Uh, um, what, what am I trying to say? They're able to make decisions in this situation. If a judge is not available, a priest is. Uh, so notice, who is in office in those days? You shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. And you shall do according to the terms of the verdict. In other words, if they render a judgment, you obey it. You don't appeal it. You don't appeal it again. You don't get on the second appeal, the third appeal. No. Their judgment is coming from God. God is judging through them. What they say goes, obey the word given to you. Now remember, all this falls under Levitical priests as the Supreme Court. He says here, verse 10, you shall do according to the terms of the verdict, which they declare to you from the place which Yahweh chooses. And, and the reason why they bring up from the place that Yahweh chooses is because if God has chosen to set his name in a particular place, and he's saying that all worship and sacrifice should come to me from all around to this one place, what he's, what he's doing there is he's actually kind of stamping 
his name and his authority in this situation. You're to come to this place to do it because that's where the presence of God is resting over these people and making that verdict. So when the priest speaks, it's God speaking to you through the priest, that kind of idea. It's an authentication of this verdict. So notice, from the place which Yahweh chooses, and you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. Now notice that. You're to be careful to observe all that they teach you. This wasn't just a, hey, you were wrong here, and here's how you need to make restitution for this. It was a teaching moment to prevent further instances. It's one thing to have knowledge and know the facts about something that you're wrong. It's another thing to employ wisdom to where you take that knowledge and you apply it to your life to avoid wrongdoing in the future. That's a definition of wisdom. It's applying knowledge to your life. So notice, it was, was a teachable moment here. Now he brings it up again, verse 11. According to the terms of the law, notice that's the standard, the source material and the standard that they have, which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or the left. The man who acts presumptuously, everybody see that word? It essentially means arrogance is what it means with arrogance, having a high heart about the situation. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve Yahweh your Elohim, nor to judge, that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people, and this is what Jamie brought up earlier, then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously, will not act arrogantly again. In other words, the person who does this the first time or any time, this is how you deal with it, and you deal with it in such a public manner to where if they don't obey the verdict that happened, well, because, you know, your dog got out and tore up six of their sheep. I mean, I don't know what situation to put before us. It would be translatable in this idea. But because that happened in that way and tore up those sheep, now you have to turn around and you have to pay a restitution. Well, do you realize how much that's going to cost me? Do you realize what that's going to do to my family? Do you realize how I'm going to be worse off for this and you don't do what's said? That's what would bring on something like this. And so, notice he says there, you shall purge the evil from Israel. And this type of situation is to be done publicly. Why? So people will hear, will be afraid, and will not be arrogant again. It's an example. It's a teaching lesson. When I was a kid, they used to paddle. Anybody get paddled in school? Yeah. Not at school. Not school. Not at, school. But, uh, at home, yeah. Dude, I got paddled at school. Um, I got paddled one time for picking up a rock. I'll never forget it. Dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, I was in second grade, and they would take you outside in the hallway. They'd have another teacher come to be a witness, and they'd paddle you, and then they'd send you back in. Now, kids knew what was happening out there. It was like, now that it's after recess, it's paddle time. It's like, dang, man. So everybody, you know, everybody was going to be paddled. They're all lining up, you know, getting ready to go. How much different do you think it would have been in a conduct situation in the classroom if the person who got paddled was paddled in front of everybody? And they say, you, it's one thing to know what's going on. It's another thing to actually see it transpire in front of your eyes and go, not me. No. Notice that God's truth is trying to leave a mark on people so that they're not the same. So that they're not the same. So we don't operate the same. So that we don't um, rely on our own understanding. Instead, in all of our ways, we would acknowledge him, and he will guide our paths. No, no, God, I got this down. I understand it better. Well, I know that's what he said in his verdict, but here's what I'm going to do. Cut all that out, because it corrupts justice. So, therefore, it's got to be dealt with. I remember, I remember hearing uh, the, the line of the, 
if it was still an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we'd all be walking around blind and toothless. And yeah. I'm like, no, because the whole point of that was to be like, I want my eyes and my teeth, so I'm not going to like mess around and, yeah. and yeah. do these things. Yep. So it makes me think I think a lot. I missed the point on that one. Yeah, it makes me think a lot when Zechariah gets to um, disciplining age mm-hmm. about what that. Sorry, Jeremy. You're okay. That, what that looks like in relation to Nathaniel and vice versa, disciplining Nathaniel in front of Zechariah, disciplining Zechariah in front of Nathaniel. What does that look like? Does that teach a message and does that ward them away from uh, doing the same foolish things? And if you know, Daniel laughs when Zechariah's getting a spanking, guess who else is getting Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> I mean, Proverbs says foolishness is bound up in a child, but a rod will drive it far from them. I mean, there's a lot to be said there about what discipline does in those situations. So anyway, something to think about. And notice it's not just confined to kids here. This is on a large scale for people who would stray away from worshiping God alone. So any thoughts, questions, antidotes, homilies, pericopes, <laughs> limericks, soliloquies, palindromes? <laughs> All right, let's pray. God, we thank you. Uh, Just for our time in Deuteronomy, how harsh these judgments are. Maybe they kind of unnerve us a little bit or or irritate us a little bit. Uh, Help us understand uh, what it looks like for a justice system in a nation, your appointment of certain people, your guidance and instruction to them in order to keep a nation holy and solely fixed upon you. And uh, just praying, God, that our um, hearts would be even more appreciative for grace and that even though we're disciplined by the Lord and sometimes it's publicly disciplined by the Lord uh, that we would understand that you are a God of justice, you are a God of righteousness you are always right in all your ways how important that is for us to have that foundation that never changes Uh, thank you God for being an incredible blessing to us by your word, it's in Jesus name, Amen thank you everybody